An Honorable Profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's t, the number four, a.org. We're also supported by opencounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities across this nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out opencounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Mayor Pete, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, Florida Representative Margaret Good, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today, we have a special episode of An Honorable Profession. We're going back in time. I had the good fortune of speaking with eminent U.S. historian Douglas Brinkley about his new book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. July 20th marks the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. I want to get Brinkley's perspective on the politics of the space race and what we can learn from big, risky government initiatives. Finding inspiration and lessons from the moonshot is incredibly important as we face issues like climate change. Enjoy the conversation and remember a time when our leaders could set ambitious goals rooted in science and faith in American ingenuity. Douglas Brinkley, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So tell us about how JFK decided to launch this race to the moon. Uh, it was not a given either in cost or science. Uh, so it was a big risk. Tell me about the political calculations he made. Well, you know, in 1960, Time magazine chose scientists as their persons of the year, not an individual, but scientists as a whole. And there was a great faith in the, in the role that science would play to solve my, mankind's problems. Add to that fact that um, in the 1960 presidential debates when Kennedy um, went after Nixon, two different key moments Kennedy said to Nixon. One was, you told Mr. Khrushchev, uh, the Soviet premier, you told Khrushchev that America is number one in kitchen appliances and we have color TV, but I want to be number one in rocket thrust. And then at another moment in the d debates, um, Kennedy said, if you elect Nixon president, I see a Soviet flag planted on the moon. I want an American flag planted on the moon. So a big backdrop of what was going on is the United States was feeling in a Cold War context that we were losing. Uh, the Soviets, to our surprise, uh, developed an atomic bomb. 
They developed thermonuclear weapons. They put up the first intercontinental ballistic missile, the R-7. They put up the first satellite. And so when Kennedy's determined to kind of counterstatement all of this, uh, and alas, he's only present in a couple of months, and the Soviets win again and put Yuri Gagarin, the first human being in space, meaning to go up of 62 miles and lose the pull of Earth's gravity. So Kennedy started saying, can we compete? And if we are going to compete with Russia, we've got to leapfrog them. We can't just go tit for tat. Um, you know, you put a cosmonaut, we put an astronaut kind of thing. So he made the moon pledge on May 25th, 1961, and it became the big deal of the early 60s. It cost $25 billion, which is, you know, $185 billion in today's um, currency. And it wasn't, uh, your book does a brilliant job of sort of showing how difficult it was. Looking back 50 years later, it seems, well, we had this goal. The science worked, the scientists worked on it, but it wasn't a given from a policy point of view or from a bureaucracy to work through the federal bureaucracy to make it happen. Tell them about some of the key battles that had to be fought and won. After the Soviets put Sputnik up in 1957, NASA got created. And the great thing about NASA was its peaceful exploration of space. We don't want to go to war with Russia or any country, but we want to peacefully see if we can sail what Kennedy called the new ocean, the new sea, the new explorers. And um, and so it ended up being, once he made the moon pledge at NASA, they were all like, are you kidding me? We have zero technology to go to the moon. Why is Kennedy saying such an, a reckless and irresponsible thing? Um, and the other saying at NASA was, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. That space exploration's expensive. Uh, but Kennedy was a master salesperson of it, and it captured the American's imagination. Uh, you know, really, in his whole lifetime, he was born in 1917, um, but aviation was the big rage. I mean, the Wright brothers, the first flight was 1903. So for Kennedy's whole childhood, the big heroes were like Charles Lindbergh crossing the Atlantic. And, uh, we are now um, military aviation and commercial aviation had become boom industries. Um, so people were interested in looking up and thinking, God, the moon's been there forever. Our early poets and philosophers have talked about it and written about it. Um, could we actually walk on the moon? And it just galvanized a generation. And it continued to get funding even with the Vietnam War going on, even with um, Medicaid and Medicare and all the great society fights of Lyndon Johnson. Enough Americans thought that the spin-off technology we would get from going to the moon would be worth the price, meaning things that are in our everyday lives like um, GPS, um, CAT scans and MRI, kidney dialysis machines, heart defibrillators, um, you know, and then radar grew out of World War II. And by the late 50s, we had the microcomputer chip, Texas Instruments, Jack Kirby, um, pioneered it, and NASA uh, adopted that technology. So NASA really ushers in the computer revolution uh, because they have the money to really do tests and implement it. So it's a direct lineage from NASA in the 1960s to Silicon Valley in the 1970s. And in your book, you talk about one of the benefits was that NASA was really able to market itself in a way that other government agencies rarely do. Uh, for all the elected officials and all the government officials who are listening, talk about the value of NASA's 
marketing and uh, storytelling as a way to to galvanize public support. I've never seen in a government agency, and I've been a historian for a long time, that was able to stoke the public imagination the way NASA did. In some ways, still does. If you wander around Santa Cruz, you'll see kids occasionally with NASA t-shirts on. You don't see Secretary of Commerce t-shirts <laughs> or uh, even, unfortunately, EPA. Um, they really caught people's imagination um, in NASA, and they did it by uh, media manipulation, by uh, winning over TV anchors like Walter Cronkite, um, by uh, embracing uh, futuristic novelists, um, people like Arthur C. Clarke um, or, you know, um, you know um, Buckminster Fuller and a lot of intellectuals, they would bring and give them access and all of that. Um, and so they, they ran it in a stealth-like way and promoted, promoted, promoted it. They'd make deals with Time and Life magazine about the stories of the astronauts. What I write about in my book, however, is that there was, you know, all these astronauts for the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo were all white men, 5'10 and under. And um, there's a lot of gender discrimination, and you're dealing with Jim Crow and some of these communities, if not in the federal facilities themselves in the late 50s and 1960s. So I don't want to paint too rosy-eyed story on it, but it is one of those rare examples that, you know, we did it. You can have, um, you know, Pearl Harbor, we remember as a tragedy, um, 9-11 a tragedy, um, Kennedy assassination a tragedy, Neil Armstrong walking on the moon is a big hurrah. And that even people that thought the funding of going to the moon, which could have been better spent here at home, couldn't help but be moved by seeing humanity, humankind, uh, you know, break the shackles of Earth and actually uh, um, step on a, uh, another celestial body. And that the the people galvanizing around an idea and working to on this common purpose you know, it's sort of emotional to read it today when you're thinking, could we agree on even the basics? Could we could we have a moonshot uh, today with the partisan atmosphere and fake news and, uh, you know, the short attention spans? Is there any lesson to be learned today for, for elected officials about their own moonshots, whether it's at the community level or at the national or global level? That's a, a great question and very well framed. Uh, I found out the term, incidentally, moonshot came from a baseball player, Wally Moon of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had hit these towering home runs, and Vince Scully, the radio announced, called them moonshots. And then it became known in Houston, Texas, as the moonshot command post. But today, the word moonshot is really applied to the U.S. government working with universities, academicians, private sector communities to tackle big things not war, but something that helps society. And so I talk to many people who think the next moonshot should be an earth shot um, to deal with climate change, to take care of our planet. Um, you know, there's, there's Buzz Aldrin, the second person on the moon, wants the next moonshot to be a Mars shot. Joe Biden talks about we need a cancer moonshot, and he's been working with MD Anderson on how we can help wipe out cancer. It's a useful idea, Moonshot, in a community to come up with ideas on the Moonshot notion of what can we do in our city that's brave and bold and we can unify people that's not going to be a um, a big D or an R kind of issue, but one that's a community or state-based. And 
Kennedy obviously was a master of rhetoric uh, and uh, used the bully pulpit to make the case. How did he? How did he galvanize people together uh, in order to make it not an R, not a D thing, but uh, uh, an American, and then eventually a, a, a you know challenge for humanity? He was an amazing orator, for starters. I mean, we all think we know how good John F. Kennedy is, but when it got down to being a salesperson for the project of Apollo, he was unbelievable. I teach at Rice University, and he came to our university in 1962 and spoke in front of 35,000 people and said, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Imagine saying that about fighting climate change today. We choose to do it not because it's easy, but but it is going to be hard, but we're going to do it. Uh, He used sports metaphors when it was convenient. Uh, On a speech at Rice, he said, you know, people ask, why do we go to the moon? Well, why did we climb Mount Everest? Why does Rice play University of Texas in football? You know, it's a challenge. And and then about beating, winning, beating the Soviets' old-fashioned competition short of war. Um, So it took presidential leadership. And what's clear, if we're going to have a big moonshot, is it's got to be a president that finds an issue that's large to unite unite the country behind. Uh, Donald Trump has picked the wall. That's his big moonshot project. And it's a non-starter. And it divides the country and creates angst and and, um, despair. So you need to find something that really will pull the United States together. Theodore Roosevelt did it with national parks. You know, what's a big thing? He created the whole idea of conservation and environmentalism when it was in its you know early stages and said, let's make it. We can still save all these great places in the United States. So uh, I personally think the cleaning the oceans. Who is opposed to getting the plastic out of the ocean and the great garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific? That's something the UN should be able to get every country ponying up to clean up the world's oceans. So what I admire about Kennedy is he had courage to inflame our imaginations, to talk about public service. He never overstated or understated the cost. He'd constantly tell audiences, you know what? It's expensive. It's going to cost you 50 cents a week, you, but I need you. Let's do it. Will you put 50 cents a week? And he started making people feel included in the effort. And it took 400000 people, subcontractors, contractors to actually go to the moon. So uh, it brought in people from all over the United States, including in the, the Bay Area and, and Caltech down in Los Angeles, Pasadena. Yeah, my, my Irish grandfather uh, immigrant, his job was to help build one of the rockets at Rocketdyne down in Los Angeles. You see, there uh, you go. Yeah, and so it and, was, uh, and they're all that generation now on the 50th anniversary are also proud. They're all like, oh, remembers the spirit when the, in the U.S. we could do something like that. There is a hunger for a new moonshot. It's just nobody with broken politics in Washington, nobody's quite sure how to do it. I suppose here in California with your bullet trains and all the problems you've had, that, that was an attempt at making something big like that work. And you see it hits the buzzsaw of political problems. It's so hard. I think one of the interesting things from reading the book is that that there there was honesty about how hard it was going to be, about how much it would cost. I mean, it eventually cost human lives. It took a, nearly a decade uh, to fulfill. And um, 
that's a different calculus than you see elected officials often make today, uh, where they sort of sugarcoat or give a best case scenario and then sort of hope things happen quickly and easily, even when they know it may not. Because then people feel ripped off and misled and it creates a, a distrust. So once you take on something big, you've got to just get stay on it. You have to be on the bully pulpit of pushing that project all the time, even if it, you don't get to focus on some other issues. Problem is today, there's just so many things that need fixing and help. And uh, we're having a very hard time in our country now to bring people together. But someday, um, you know, it may happen. I mean, one thing that's spurring space exploration on right now is the privatization of space with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Branson and many others um, that are talking about, you know, putting up new kinds of satellites and the like. Um, You know, there's more technology in your your iPhone than there it was in the rocket that um, you know computer that took us to the moon it was quite primitive and you look at some of those astronauts of that era and you see some of those capsules they're like little rusted tin cans uh, and you realize just how uh, odd it was really to be shot up into space like that and the idea that you're going to parachute out of safety and as you mentioned many people perished um, the Apollo 1 accident of 1967, we lost Gus Grissom and Ed White, Roger Chafee. They burned and incinerated on Cape Canaveral. I write in my book about others. Uh, we sometimes forget the, the road of bones it took to go to the moon. And one of the nicer gestures that NASA did is right before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin pulled up the ladder from the Eagle, they, um, Armstrong says, did you leave the packet? And you see Armstrong kind of um, drop a, a little package that he had on his suit. And in that were medals to commemorate the Apollo 1 astronauts, but also the Russian cosmonauts who died in their space program um, because the United States was telling Russia we never could have made it to the moon if we weren't in a fierce competition with each other. Um, Kennedy, it's a longer conversation for us now, but Kennedy was not as keen as you might imagine on these proxy wars. He wasn't on Korea. I don't know what would have happened in Vietnam if he stayed. He was obviously uh, um, complicit in the assassination of Diem and in sending advisors there. But the idea that we were going to go into Vietnam the way Lyndon Johnson did seems quite remote. Um, Kennedy was trying to um, challenge Russia in the scientific field and didn't want another proxy war. That's God, you can only imagine how history could have turned out differently uh, um, if Dallas hadn't occurred. So are you optimistic having your, I mean, between this book and the TR book about the creation of the national parks and wilderness, um, those were two big national efforts that pulled people together that sort of transcended um, partisan divide and also left a legacy for future generations. Are you optimistic after studying this history that we can do it again or are those days behind us? On good days, I'm optimistic, but the, we now are in though a global peril. I mean, we're dealing with Earth being very worn, environmental degradation everywhere. Um, and you're seeing a reaction of people with money wanting to put up drawbridges and moats you're seeing a rise of, of uh, right-wing nationalism. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a kind of, of cruelness, a, a lack of courtesy manner. 
um, you know, and everybody's in kind of a grab mode for themselves. So it's one thing to try to get the United States to do something like go to the moon, but can you organize all of these countries in the world to really try to get off fossil fuels or to clean the oceans? It takes global leadership at a time when um, we're, we don't even have proper American leadership. So we'll have to see how things play out. But, you know, the point of American history when I study it is to remind us that our own times are not uniquely oppressive. When you look at the Civil War and, and hundred you know, thousands of people die and, you know, you look at even Vietnam, 58,000 uh, killed and untold maim. And, um, you know, you realize that there are a lot of struggles and we're just in a, a, a bit of a dark period right now trying to figure our way of what we're going to do next. But if you travel the country and you know this running your bookstore, there are a lot of good people out there. And that's what gets you going. I get very excited when I go to college campuses and meet young people. And they're like angels of pure future, you know, all excited about tackling problems. And and there are areas that we're doing, you know, every day there's new medical miracles. There's longevity, people living better. We just have to find ways to make healthcare more affordable. But there, there, there are positives around us all the time. It's just, can we collectively organize for something large and exciting and motivate people again? And uh, I think eventually, but maybe not right now. And so one of the ways that may be out of this is to, uh, to go back into history and find these, um, this inspiration. And certainly your writing has done that for me and so many others. I'm, I'm a former history major. Uh, you teach history at Rice. Uh, there's an all-time low of students studying history in college. What's your thought about how to change that trajectory um, if we are going to have people who want to build the future informed on the past? I think we've made a terrible mistake of not promoting the humanities in a more robust way in middle schools and high schools. Um, We're graduating kids from high school with no sense of where countries are. They don't know mountain ranges or rivers. Um, They don't know topography of of even the state that they live. Um, And, you know, we we threw away civics as being old-fashioned, but maybe we need to re-go back to what is a community organizing civic engagement, how you can make a difference in your local town. Uh, I tell a lot of young people that are worried about climate change, I say, look, adopt a local wildlife refuge, adopt a state park, uh, help one that you can really help. And if a lot of people pick one and do that, we start having a movement. You just can't be angst-ridden about solving something as large as the climate crisis. Um, But you can start doing things on a local basis to make things a little bit better. Um, What school did you go to? University of Oregon. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. Man, that's a great place. It was. It was, and history was the best major. I always tell people it's. I learned about politics, but the storytelling's better. Uh, that's so, it. The uh, political so, science has its virtues, but the uh, history, the storytelling, and really, that's how you get young people interested now. Is storytelling? They lo- love history if they're taught it properly, but you can't make it boring um, in high school because you lose people's interest. You have no idea how many young people I've had say, oh, my God, what's, what are you going to do with history? What's the point of it? Uh, you know, or, or why read great novels? How's that going to get me a job? Um, what's the point of philosophy? It seems like a dead end. That makes me sad. So I try to champion the humanities uh, whenever I can with um, history being really, in my mind, the crown jewel of the humanities. 
And we get, you know, I, I always tell them, I, when I talk to the founders of, and CEOs, sure, they want engineers, but for all the other jobs, they want people who can tell a story, who can analyze, who can think. They want people who are solid in the humanities. Um, there, there's plenty of jobs out there, and many of the problems the world faces at some level require technology, but more often they require an understanding of humanity. Absolutely, and since we're in your bookstore um, writing, you have to learn how to write. Writing's still, even though people use YouTube and do imaging and our videos and all this, uh, there's nothing like sustained reading. Um, and when the, you read a lot, then you learn how to write well. And that's a tool everybody wants. Any company, any business needs somebody who can write press releases or write newspaper articles or write copy or write letters or write, you know, it's, st- it's still the skill um, short of being, um, uh, you know, a tech wizard um, and, and or somebody in the science field, there's every company business has to have people who can write. So speaking of write, writing, you are a tremendous writer uh, and you've written, uh, I think, 16 books and se- about seven presidents and Walter Cronkite and Rosa Parks. What's next for you? What's the next project? I'm writing a book. Um, I took a break to write American Moonshot um, for a few different reasons. One is I, I got lucky and I got to do the official oral history of Neil Armstrong before he died for NASA and got to interview him for hours. And, uh, um, and But I'm trying to write a multiple-volume environmental history of the United States. I did The Wilderness Warrior on Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir era. I did one on Alaska called The Quiet World. I did then a, a third volume dealing with um, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the, what they're calling the Green New Deal now, uh, but the uh, FDR and the CCC and, and up in parks and all that. And now I'm writing Silent Spring Revolution, Rachel Carson, Kennedy, um, you know, Udall, Ansel Adams here in the, in, uh, the Santa Cruz you know, a Monterey Belt um, and, and others. Um, California is a big part of that story. So I'm covering it the long 60s. Really, the book is going to be 1945 to 1974. Uh, so what happens after World War II with nuclear bombs, um, waste disposal, um, uh, widespread use of plastics and pesticides, and how there became an action uh, of people, grassroots, that said we've had enough on the environmental movement by 1974. It created the Environmental Protection Agency. I'm writing about the Santa Barbara oil spill of 69, and um, a number of, of uh, poets and writers you know, that um, really made a difference in folk singers and rock and roll people. Yeah, absolutely. And then hopefully it's a playbook for uh, reigniting that movement as we face these global challenges that you've talked about. Well, they're all being challenged every day. The Environmental um, Protection Agency is getting hit. Uh, uh, the Trump administration's trying to do away with um, national monuments lands in Utah. They're doing um, pipelines everywhere. It's, uh, it's the, the part that's frustrating about conservation environmental work is you go two steps forward and then you get slapped back and then two steps forward and slapped back. And so it's exhausting. Uh, but you have to be a kind of a preacher of the gospel of wilderness or environmentalism, ecology, um, just be, because young people get to get into it. And um, we have to help spur a next generation to pick up some of our slack yeah absolutely and it's realized that it just doesn't happen it takes a 
takes generations of fight. We thought we'd stopped offshore oil drilling after the Santa Barbara disaster here. We're back at it, fighting That's it again. It's, the uh, big thing is to love, love something, love sea otters, love the um, you know the redwood trees, love. If you love a, a place or a species enough, that love can really get you motivated and galvanized. And that's why I find a lot of the great writers and um, nature writers are very inspiring, as are documentarians and photographers. In general, the work that the Sierra Club continues to do is just seminal. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for writing a, a really uh, moving and impressive book to honor this anniversary. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep this honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>